Well, good afternoon, spring. Uh, it's really great to see you here in the worship center. Arizona is getting true monsoon, aren't we? Wow, it's, uh, it's been such that uh, if you go outside and you get caught in the rain, just think of renewing your baptismal vows. That's all. But it's great, isn't it? We need the rain, and God is blessing us with that. We're sorry for the strong winds and some of the damage that gets done, but the rain itself is life-giving to us, and we're grateful. And it's another indication of how God is watching out for us and taking care of us. It's good to see you here, and I want to greet those who are worshiping with us online, uh, not only right now, this very moment, live with us, but throughout this week as you check in and, uh, and worship with us. We're grateful for all of you. And we appreciate your prayers and your support uh, in a great way. It's exciting also, isn't it, that we have a new spring person. I know we won't have little Graham around all that long because they're going to go to Denver. But how exciting that uh, we get to announce that joyful event to you, a new life for Katie and Chris. And we really do celebrate with them. I guess that birth actually happened just a couple of hours ago. I believe some, someone said around 3 o'clock or so this afternoon, something like that. So they're just now welcoming and enjoying their new one. And so we rejoice with them. We certainly do. I want you to know, um, and you're going to be hearing more about this in the weeks to come, but we at the spring are moving forward. We have cast our eyes upon the future and uh, we're going to use the theme that Paul gave us in the book of Philippians where he said, I'm going to forget those things that are behind and I'm going to strain and press toward that for which God is calling us. And that's what we're going to do at the spring. And in the next several weeks, you'll be hearing more and more as we seek to uh, catch afresh and anew the vision that God has for us and uh, the mission that God has for us. And we've got the study a committee working and our elders are working and we'll keep you updated but I just want you to know um, we're not quitting we're not giving up uh, we're going forward and we believe God still has work for us to do and a ministry to perform and so uh, keep praying for the spring and thank you for your participation and as I said I promise we'll keep you updated as to developments. Please take your Bible, if you would, or your, um, your phone or your app that, where the scriptures are located. And if you would turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, the 16th chapter, and I'm going to read uh, verses 21 through 28. Matthew 16, 21 to 28. And let me just set the context up for you. Uh, just for a few moments, uh, Jesus is predicting, he's telling his disciples that when he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to be arrested, he's going to be abused, and he's eventually going to be killed. And in the midst of that message to his disciples, he makes a statement that we, you and I want to kind of look at tonight in particular as we think about the difficult statements of Jesus or those hard sayings that we've been examining uh, in our sum, summer sermon series. Did Jesus really say that? 
I'm sure you can pick it out as I read these verses for you. Matthew 16, 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And now comes this difficult statement. Um, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, must take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels. And then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Just a word before we pray together and begin this message to you. That last verse has thrown lots of people. When Jesus said, some of you standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. What is He referring to? We know He's not referring to His second coming at the end of the age because none of these people are going to be present when that happens. So we can rule that out. But the other possibilities, and maybe He was talking about a couple of things, is the very next thing that's going to happen that Matthew records for us in the 17th chapter is that grand and glorious experience with three of his disciples up on the mount when he is transfigured before them and they see some of his splendor and some of his glory, at least as much of his splendor and glory as human eyes and human life can take. That's a possibility. But what I would like to point you to probably is, although that may apply I believe Jesus is telling them that after the resurrection, Jesus is coming in his kingdom because it is the death and the burial and the resurrection that seals the doom of Satan and evil and sin and ensures that the kingdom has been fully established and is on its way of being unfolded. So I would just suggest to you that he's talking there about his glorious resurrection. Well, would you pray with me? Our Father, we want to hear from you this afternoon. This is your word, and we pray that your spirit will come and open our minds and our hearts 
that we might hear exactly what it is that you know we need to hear this afternoon. You know where we're at. You know our needs. You know our concerns, our struggles, our worries. Speak a word of encouragement and strength and blessing and help to us tonight. In Christ's name, amen. Well, it's Olympic time. And Jeanette and I love the Olympics, and I'm sure many of you do as well. So we've been trying to watch uh, some of the Olympics. It's, it's always unfortunate when they take place that's a, a, a day ahead of us because the newscasters always ruin it, don't they? And they tell us who got the gold even before we had a chance sometimes to see it. But I'd like to tell you a true story that comes out of the Olympics it's the true story of a man by the name of Derek Redman. I'm sure that once I begin to share this story with you, some of you will remember it and recall it, and perhaps you watched it in the moment in which it took place. Now, unlike Carl Lewis or Daley Thompson, Derek Redman is not a name that conjures up memories of Olympic golds in track and field. But it is Redman who defines the essence of the human spirit. Redman arrived at the 1992 Olympic Summer Games in Barcelona, determined that he was going to win a medal in the 400 meters. The color of the medal did not matter to him. He just wanted to win one of them, just one. He had been forced to withdraw from the 400 meters in the 1988 games in Seoul, South Korea. Only 10 minutes before the race, he experienced an Achilles tendon injury and he had to drop out. He then underwent five surgeries over the next year. This was the same runner who had shattered the British 400-meter record when he was only 19 years of age. So when the 1992 games arrived, this was his time, his moment, his stage to show the world just how good he was. Derek's father, Jim, had accompanied him to Barcelona just as he had to all of his world competitions. They were as close as any father and son could possibly be, and inseparable, really, the best of friends. And whenever Derek ran, it was as if his father was running right there next to him. Well, the day of the race arrives. Father and son reminisce about what it took for Derek to get to this point. They talk about ignoring the past heartbreaks and the past failures, and they agree that if anything bad happens, no matter what it is, Derek has to finish the race, period. The top four finishers in each of the two semifinal heats qualify, of course, for the Olympic finals. As the race time approaches for the semifinal 400 heat, Jim heads up to his seat in the nosebleed section of the Olympic Stadium, not far away from where the Olympic torch was lit just a few days earlier. He was wearing a t-shirt that read, have you hugged your foot today? 
The stadium is packed with 65,000 fans, bracing themselves for one of sport's greatest and most exciting spectacles. The race begins, and Redmond breaks from the pack and quickly seizes the lead. Keep it up. Keep it up, Jim was saying to himself. Down the back stretch, only 175 meters away from finishing, Redmond is a shoe-in to make the finals. And then suddenly, he hears a pop. It's his right hamstring. He pulls up lame, just as if someone had just shot him. Oh no, Jim says to himself. His face pales. His leg starts quivering. Redmond begins hobbling on one leg, then slows down, and he falls to the track. As he lays on the track, clutching his right hamstring, a medical personnel unit runs toward him. At the same time, Jim Redmond, seeing his son in trouble, races down from the top row of the stands, sidestepping people, pushing them aside. He has no credentials to be on the track, but all he thinks about is getting to his son to help him up. He quoted later to the media, I wasn't about to let anyone stop me. On the track, Redmond realizes his dream of an Olympic medal is gone. Tears run down his face. All I could think of was, I'm out of the Olympics again. As the team arrived, the medical team arrived with a, a stretcher, Redmond said to them, no, there is no way I'm getting on that stretcher. I'm going to finish my race. And then in a moment that will live forever in the minds of millions, Redmond lifts himself up to his feet ever so slowly, and he starts hobbling down the track. The other runners have already finished the race, and Steve Lewis of the U.S. won the contest. Suddenly, everyone realizes that Redmond is not dropping out of the race by hobbling off to the side of the track. No, he's actually continuing on one leg. He's going to attempt to hobble his way to the finish line all by himself, all in the name of pride and heart. Slowly, the crowd in total disbelief rises and begins to roar. The roar gets louder and louder. Through the searing pain, Redmond hears the cheers. But he quoted later, I wasn't doing it for the crowd. I was doing it for me. Whether people thought I was an idiot or a hero, I was going to finish the race because I'm the one who has to live with it. One painful step at a time, each one a little slower and more painful than the one before. His face is absolutely twisted in pain and tears. He limps on. And the crowd, now in tears, is cheering him on. Suddenly, Jim Redmond finally gets to the bottom of the stands. He leaps over the railing. 
and he avoids a security guard and he runs out to his son with two security guards chasing after him. That's my son out there, he yells back at the security, and I'm going to help him. Finally, with Derek refusing to surrender and painfully limping along the track, Jim reaches his son at the final curve, about 120 meters from the finish, and he wraps his arm around the waist of his son. I'm here, son, Jim says softly, hugging his boy. We'll finish this thing together. Derek puts his arms around his father's shoulders and sobs. Together, arm in arm, father and son, with 65,000 people cheering like crazy and clapping and crying, finishing the race just as they vowed they would. Just a couple of steps before the finish line, and with the crowd now in an absolute frenzy, Jim releases the grip that he has on his son so Derek could cross the finish line by himself. Then he throws his arm around Derek again, both crying, now along with everyone else in the stands and many who are watching on television. I'm the proudest father alive, he tells the press afterwards with big tears in his eyes. I'm prouder of him than I would have been if he had won the gold medal. It took a lot of guts for him to do what he did. You see, Derek won by losing. Jesus said, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. That sounds absurd. In fact, what I would like to suggest to you, that cuts across conventional wisdom. It is counterintuitive. It goes against common sense and what you and I would intuitively think would be true. But when you stop and think about it, that's what the teachings of Jesus is all about. His teachings are consistently counterintuitive. It goes against conventional wisdom, against common sense, against what you and I would normally think is the truth. Listen to what Isaiah said about this God. He said it this way in Isaiah 55 and verse 9. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's ways and God's thoughts are radically different from your or my thoughts. I want to take you in a hop, skip, and jump through the Bible and show you, introduce you to our counterintuitive God that we have been studying about in these difficult, hard, 
statements that Jesus has been making. Uh, There are many examples that I could have given out of the scriptures, but I've just selected a few so that you can see how God operates with his people in a counterintuitive way against what would normally be called logical or conventional wisdom. I take you first to Moses. You will recall that Moses was tending sheep out there in the desert somewhere in Midian area after he had uh, escaped from Egypt. And God appeared to him uh, through a burning bush and called him to go back to Egypt and to be the human person that God would choose to use to rally Israel and deliver them from Israel, uh, from uh, Egypt's uh, bondage and slavery. And in that encounter, in Exodus chapter 4, you, you should read about this sometime. In Exodus chapter 4, God says to Moses, what is that that you have in your hand? And of course, it's a shepherd's staff. And so Moses responds by saying, a rod, a staff, depends on the English translation. It's just an old, smelly, dirty shepherd's staff. And God says, throw it down. And Moses throws it down, and it becomes a serpent. And then God says to Moses, pick it up. Now, if I were Moses, nothing doing, because I hate snakes. In fact, I'm scared to death of snakes. But Moses reaches down, and he picks it up, and it becomes the staff again. Now, here's what's interesting. It is the staff that God tells Moses to hold over the Red Sea that God would then use to part that Red Sea. And not only that, but after this encounter with God saying, what's in your hand, and Moses replying, a dirty, smelly shepherd's rod. In just a few verses later, it's called the rod of God because God takes that staff and does the impossible with it. Or I would like to take you to a man called Gideon in the Old Testament. Gideon was asked by God to fight against uh, the people of God's enemies, the Midianites at this particular time. And so Gideon gets his army together. He has 135 soldiers. Um, uh, Excuse me, he's fighting against 135 Midian soldiers. 135 soldiers are coming after him from Midian. He has 32,000. And God says to Gideon, your army's too big. I want you to pare it down. And so Gideon pares it down to 10,000. And God comes back to Gideon and says, it's still too big. You must pare it down even more. And Gideon pares it down to 300 soldiers. Now, my dear friends, that is absurd. And if it was not in the Bible, I wouldn't believe it. Because Gideon took 300 soldiers and defeated 135,000 soldiers of Midian and won a great victory. 
It's a counterintuitive God at work. Now, why did he do it that way? And if you read the passage in Judges chapter 7, you will discover that the reason why God wanted Gideon to pare back the army was he wanted to teach Gideon and Israel that God was in control, not them. And that he was giving them the victory, not their strategy or not their ability to fight. God wanted the honor and God wanted the glory. I, I take you to Samson. We all know the story of Samson. But in 1 Samuel chapter 15, again, he goes against the enemies of God's people, the Philistines in this case. And he, the only weapon that he has in his hand is the jawbone of a donkey. And with it, he wins a mighty victory. That's absurd. That's counterintuitive. That flies in the face of common sense. And certainly against the normal kind of wisdom that you and I would use. Surely, if you're going to go to battle, you need a weapon. And the jawbone of a donkey won't do. But it does for God. Remember young David. When no one could defeat Goliath, young David, the shepherd boy, steps forward. And what does he have? He has a slingshot, five smooth stones. And with that slingshot, he defeats one of the fiercest enemies that was ever confronting the people of Israel. In Isaiah, again, if I can read this for you, it's in chapter 65 and verse 24. Our counterintuitive God made this statement to his people at that time. And he says it to you and me as well. He says, before they call, I will answer. Now that seems absurd. Before they even think to pray about something, God is sending the answer on the way. I would have had a hard time understanding that until it happened to Jeanette and me in the very early days of our marriage and our ministry. We were in Michigan. We were in a, a church uh, that could not afford to pay very much. So our salary was very meager. And we were facing a, a bill that, was, that had come due. And we had no resources to pay it. We didn't have the funds to do it. And that morning when we got up and we knew that it was going to need to be paid in the next day or two at the most, that morning we got up and we prayed. And we said, Lord, we don't know what we're going to do. This bill is coming. We're a pastor. We want to make sure we pay our bills on time. But we don't have the resources and we don't know what to do. And we're just looking to you for help. That afternoon in the mail, a letter came to us from a couple that Jeanette knew, I only knew the wife. I had met the wife once or twice. I had not yet met the husband of, this, of, of the wife. He was in the Navy, and they were stationed in Puerto Rico. The wife was supposed to be in our wedding, but she was pregnant with twins and was not able to travel. There they were in Puerto Rico, a Christian couple, and they sent us a check for the amount we needed 
to pay that bill. It arrived the day we prayed about it, which meant it was in the mail three or four days or longer before it actually arrived to us. That's when I learned that God is the God who before you and I call is answering us. Look at the Beatitudes. You know those Beatitudes. They're in Matthew chapter 5 where he begins the sermon. And it's counterintuitive stuff from beginning to end. Uh, Who gets the kingdom of heaven? It's those who are poor in spirit. Who is comforted? It's those who were mourned. Who will inherit the earth? It's the meek. Who will be filled? It's those who are constantly hungry and thirsting. Who will be given mercy? It's those who have mercy. Who will see God? It's those who are pure in heart. And it goes on and on. In fact, later on it says, blessed are those who persecute you because God is rejoicing and you're able to rejoice because God is alive and well in you. Counterintuitive stuff. That's our God. God's strength, we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, is made perfect in weakness. It's when you and I are at our weakest moment that God's strength can be released in us. Why? Because as long as you and I think we can do it, God will stand by and let us try. But once we get to the place where there's no more buttons to push, no more programs to try, nothing else as far as resources at our disposal, once we get there, we can then throw ourselves into the arms of God and declare we're too weak, we can't do it, and God begins to take over. Do you remember the little boy who had the lunch of just a few little fish and some pita bread? I hope you understand that those little fish that that boy had are about sardine size, and that the little pita bread that he would have carried with it so that he could eat them together would have been a little bit bigger than a silver dollar. Do you remember that he gave that to Jesus? And Jesus did what common sense and normal wisdom would say is not possible. He fed more than 5,000 people with those sardine fish and silver dollar-sized pita bread. And here we are with Jesus saying to us, lose your life and you will gain it. If you try to hold on to your life, you will lose it. Of course, we lose our life in the will of God. We lose our life when we allow him to take over and to fully control and possess us. I have two questions for you as we think about this counterintuitive God of ours. Question number one, when was the first time that you realized that Jesus and the gospel were radically different 
from the way the world operated. Let me say that again. When was the very first time that you realized that Jesus and the gospel were radically different from the way the world operated? May I tell you the first time I discovered that? I was a brand new Christian, only a few weeks old in the faith. And I was on the campus of a Christian college, which is a sovereign story in its, in, in, in its, in its own. And I was in, in the second semester of my freshman year. And a young man who was also a freshman that I had only met once or twice, his name was Roger, had gone to the dean of men and accused me of doing something that was going to get me expelled from the college. I got a note in my college mailbox that said the dean of men called him by name, wants to see you in his office as soon as possible. So I went, and I sat down, and I was confronted with this weird story that this other student, Roger, had told the dean of men that I had done, and in fact, not even close. I hadn't done any of it. And I was facing expulsion, and it was going to happen very, very soon. In myself, I wanted to get to Roger and teach him a real lesson that you don't lie about other people. And the real lesson I had in mind was not the nicest thing for me to be able to stand up here and describe to you. That's what I was going on inside me. But then as a brand new Christian, I remembered that at some point in time in the past few weeks, I had read a passage from the Bible that said that you are to love your enemies and you are to pray for those who despitefully use you. I was conflicted. I was a Christian. Jesus said, love your enemies. Pray for those who despitefully use you. I had been despitefully used. I considered him my enemy at this point because he was seeking my expulsion. I had a choice to make. I could do it my way or I could believe that what God said is the truth and I needed to submit. The very next day, I was called back into the dean's office. And he said, I wanted to see you today because Roger recently came in to see me early this morning and confessed that he had lied about the whole thing. It's when I realized that God's truth was counterintuitive. I wanted to do something nasty to Roger because he had done something nasty to me. But Jesus had said to me, 
you can't do it because you're to love your enemies and to pray for those who despitefully use you. And then later on in my lifetime, with that lesson burning into my heart, I read Proverbs 14, 12, where Proverbs says this, there is a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. That's so true for you and me. We look at circumstances and situations in which we find ourselves, and the, the common way of doing things or thinking things is X, Y, Z, but then Jesus comes along and blows that up and says, no, no, it's this. So when was the first time you encountered this counterintuitive Jesus and had to deal with the truth that doesn't always make sense in our world? My second question, and with this I'll close, is what are you doing that is counterintuitive? How does this impact the way you think? You and I as Christians do think counterintuitively from the world. We call things sacred that the world calls something else. And they don't always get our thinking. So what are you doing that is counterintuitive in your thinking, in the way you live your life, in the way you talk, in the way you act and react to individuals who may hurt you or wound you or step on your toes? Yes. Jesus said, if you want to win life, you lose it. That doesn't make sense but it is the truth. And so may God help us to be counterintuitive people who live not according to the wisdom of the world, but the wisdom of this radical Jesus who upsets everything. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus Christ, your message does indeed shake us to the core of our being. It catches us off guard. Sometimes we find ourselves arguing about it with you because it doesn't make sense. We think we have a better idea. We think we have another way of operating and doing it. But then your truth comes to us and we pray for grace to always submit and to say, not my will, but yours be done, O God. So teach us. Teach us that we do win when we lose. If what it is that we're losing is our self-centeredness, our sense of control, and we're winning because we're allowing Jesus to be in control and to be Lord, and to be Master. Bless your church. Give them a great week this week. Use them in the various places where they will be going. In the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.
Amen.